Hi, everyone. My name is Shannon Calder, licensed therapist, and I'm joined by Dr. Kathy Barrett, forensic psychologist. We talk about all topics from a psychological perspective. Welcome to Terror Talk. Hi, everyone. This is Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. Hello. Hello. So this week on the show, we are going to discuss the movie Joker, which is the 2019 film starring Joaquin Phoenix and directed by Todd Phillips. It just came out recently, right? It's only been out a few weeks. I know it's breaking records. I think it's like close to a month now, but yeah, it's it's new. Breaking records, as everyone knows. Uh, So the film and the character actually are fascinating on a personal, individual, and collective level, I think, for many reasons. Um, We hope to explicate and amplify some of that in our thoughts today from a psychological perspective, as we do here on the talk. Uh, Yeah. So, gosh, he's so complex. We we struggled a little bit with where to start, how to organize this, but I think... um, what we're going to start with is some of the neurological or biological mm-hmm. uh, a- affect that you witness mm-hmm. in Sir Joker. So I guess that would have us, I mean, this is where I would start. I would start with the pseudobulbar effect that's going on there. Okay. So um, commonly known as PBA, because that word is hard to say, I guess, or emotional incontinence, which I'll just throw out a definition of it for those who don't know. It's an emotional disturbance characterized by uncontrollable crying and or laughing. I think a lot of times, at least when I've witnessed it in real life people, it often starts with laughing and becomes crying. And the affect is often incongruent, meaning the they're laughing when something isn't funny and they're crying when something isn't sad. So they're just, yeah, they're, um, and some people I've known people who have narcolepsy who get it, uh, MS. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's all, it's deeply rooted, like you said, in that neuro, in the neurological piece. Yeah. I think what people probably don't understand is that when you're watching this movie, um, it's just important to remember that PBA is a neurological disorder or a brain injury, that it's biologic, it's organic right. to the brain as opposed to being a mental health symptom. That's right. And at the beginning, you know, because the Joker is always presented as this crazy character and you think the laughing is is this maniacal, psychotic, psychotic thing. Mm-hmm. But um, no, there are people, I've known people who have this. And I actually, growing up, I had a friend of mine who um, had narcolepsy and she would if she laughed too hard, mm-hmm. her um, she would start to fall asleep. It was mm-hmm. really crazy. It was all kind of tied in. So it is, it, and sometimes people, I think with MS have this as well, mm-hmm. where they'll they'll laugh uncontrollably. So yeah, it has nothing to do with mental health. Yeah, I think it's it's an affective dysregulation. It's it, it's not to be kind of confused with those personalities disorders different types of things that can be an incongruent affect as well but for a completely different reason i mean you can see <laughs> you can see through joaquin's portrayal right that yeah. this is a very uncontrollable yep. thing that is confusing to him embarrassing humiliating and and for him it l- looked to me like most of the time it was a reaction to um fear humiliation you know shame that's where anxiety. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anxiety. So just important to differentiate that. That's what makes this, this, I'll, I'll call it a case or this person like creating a case concept out of this guy. I think that's what's so interesting about it is because 
there is those biological effects. There are these um, psychological traits, and then there are all these um, killer, you know, mm-hmm. pathology. So mm-hmm. he's layered for sure. Yeah. So the mental health symptoms. I don't know. Throw one out there. What are some of the mental health symptoms that we see in this guy? Man, uh, well, depression for one. Yeah, I think that's one of the so uh, PBA can often be comorbid with um, mental health symptoms, and I think one of the big ones that it's comorbid with is MDD or major depressive disorder. Yeah, I mean, I I, I would imagine that after a period of time, that has to and it becomes part of your identity. Mm-hmm. You know that that would cause um, depression. Yeah. Or yeah. Who knows which came first, right? Chicken or the, I mean, I, you know, the brain injury we're assuming came first, like, but we don't really know. We don't. I mean, we know he was, we know he was young when he had head trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, but we also don't know if there were any other head traumas. I mean, that was the one he spoke of, but he was abused pretty badly. And we don't here. I mean, here's, here's some of the information we don't have, which is, was mom, using any substance or drinking when she was carrying him. So mm-hmm. if you're looking at this, just not as joker, but as mm-hmm. a patient sitting in front of you, I certainly would want to know what um, pregnancy was like and, and what kind of stress she was under. Mm-hmm. And we, we know that cortisol, we've done enough research now knowing that maternal stress, that cortisol can be passed to the baby among other things can be passed to the baby. So if she was drinking, if she was smoking, if she was using, if she was depressed, if she was getting abused, mm-hmm. these are all things that we would want to know, right? Yeah, and what we know, I guess, from the movie, if we take it as the information we have, what we know is that we can assume that um, she had the other biological or genetic component is this predisposition to some pretty severe mental health symptoms yep. because it's revealed in the movie that mom was uh making stuff up too yep and we're we don't know the how that developed or what she said and didn't say and all that that's not really taken into consideration but it is taken into consideration that the world he was told was real or his concept which will play later in this discussion you know that what his mother told him he was and who he was was not true right and so this this, I, i turned to shannon when we were watching the movie and first of all our heads were exploding from the beginning because we're like fuck we should have brought something to write and then it's like Kathy, just enjoy it just enjoy it just enjoy it but there's so much coming up and those of you who were listening to us way back when I was doing the Ted Bundy series we talked a lot about how um, your reality testing early on when your identity when you find out that your story isn't what you've been told there, there was was a lot of the same type of stuff with him where mm-hmm. he found out um, that a lot of his story were lies mm-hmm. um, or was lies. And so, you know, when we think about identity and personality development, well, that throws. Yeah. And I would argue in, in the way they crafted this movie is that that particular moment, you know, there's a, obviously a huge ramp up, which we'll get a little bit more into as far as the triggers and the protective factors that were taken away, et cetera. But just for the sake of this point, I would argue that when he is told that what his mother told him he was, that he was the light of the world and all of that, when that was stripped away from him as like the final crescendo of his reality being stripped away, 
that was sort of, that was when that was it tipped over. That was the final straw. That was the final straw. This is actually a little clip of um, kind of the, I guess the outcome of that, sort of what he says about that. Let me just uh, bring up the sound. Here we go. For my whole life, I didn't know if I even really existed. But I do. And people are starting to notice. You think this is funny? <laughs> is this a joke to you? Murray, one small thing. Yeah. When you bring me out, can you introduce me as Joker? So I would argue what I'm reason why I wanted to play that is I would argue that, you know, his the that final straw of my mom's not really who she said she was, and I'm that means I'm not really who I say I am or thought I was. It's that through my whole life I didn't even really know if I really existed. But I do, and people are starting to take notice. And then that's when the shadow becomes the person, right? Like his persona becomes who he is. He's decided he's the Joker. It's like mm -hmm. that's when he crosses over. It's like the origin story of <laughs> how he finally loses who he was before. Mm -hmm. He becomes this villain, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, when we're still talking symptoms, I guess, here. Mm -hmm. But another thing that you and I were... Uh, and I actually asked a couple other people this question to yeah. see if they, Shannon and I were talking after about, you know, if you've seen the movie, he believes that he's starting to date his neighbor. And so, and this is, this might be splitting hairs to some people, but it's more about the discussion piece than who's right. <laughs> but it's interesting, the perspectives, perspectives mm -hmm. of it, because it was unclear to me whether he was actually seeing this woman when he was going out or was he just believing yeah. that he was in this relationship? And so from a mental health perspective, there's a big difference between hallucinations and delusions. And so that was an interesting piece. So I asked two different colleagues and they each said one of each. So one was <laughs> like, I thought it was more delusional. My other colleagues like, no, I think it was, I think they might've been hallucinations, but everyone seemed a little confused about mm -hmm. that piece because one of the questions that I had, um, brought up to you, Shannon, was are we seeing someone here who's truly psychotic and can be medicated versus a delusional disorder, which you really can't medicate? Mm -hmm. And sometimes a, they the person will appear to have a somewhat normal life until there's a massive trigger where the delusion actually becomes unmanageable. So I don't know if you want to yeah. say anything more about that. But. Yeah, I can see how there's, and that would be, an, that's an interesting discussion point because there is no answer because it's a movie, right? right? So and it's the made for interpretation. Yeah, and it's made for interpretation. And I think that's obviously the great thing about movies is that we get to discuss and um, decide for ourselves. And I would say it's interesting because it's possible that it's both, right? Mm -hmm. it, absolutely. <laughs> they, they certainly set the stage for it being both. Mm -hmm. I mean, the argument to me for fantasy is pretty clear because that weaves into the larger theme and the larger story. So, um, so this is what I mean to say is that the delusions that have become pretty, um, 
fixated, fixed, I think, for him mm -hmm. uh, because of his um, relationship with his mother, which I would say is like a Jungian concept of the devouring mother, where the mother feeds on their own children to fulfill themselves. And, and you know, they have this enmeshed relationship. We see him bathing her um, when she um, dies. It's a even though he causes her death, it's a major loss for him because she's one of his protective factors, really, because she's keeping the fantasy alive. Right. That um, because she tells him I'm I'm to. You know, he says, I'm to be the light of the world. I'm supposed to entertain the world and bring joy and happiness to the world. You, you said something really important. And yeah. I want to touch on that real quick, which okay. is um, when I was working in CONREP um, and I was working with uh, patients who were either found not guilty by reason of insanity or had some sort of psychotic disorder, we would talk a lot about how sometimes we don't want to rob someone of a protective factor, even if it appears to be delusional or, or like we, we don't want them to believe that it isn't true. It's like, whoa, 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 but this might be what's keeping mm -hmm. them together. Absolutely. We had a lot of conversations like that in the psych unit. Like mm -hmm. It and I would characterize it as you don't want to rob someone of their defenses right away. Right. So it's like if his so this is what we see in this movie. We see this man ripped of all of his defenses. Now even at the beginning of the movie, you say, okay, so he's off. Like this guy's got a lot of problems. We can tell that he's struggling to keep it together, and his sense of self is slowly <laughs> breaking apart. But then he the loss of the mother, the loss of his job, all of the different triggers that he comes up against, those are the things that strip away and the, oh, and the loss of his therapist. Mm -hmm. So even though the therapist was judgmental and we can all talk about how it wasn't really effective <laughs> and that she had her own there was an attachment issues, there was somewhere he went and sat and was in relationship with someone. Mm -hmm. um, it was a supportive factor. And so, yeah, for sure, what I hear you saying is like you, you, you strip someone of, I, I guess what, I guess what we always used to say was like if the delusions, we didn't want to confront the delusions all day long. Right. Like that's not the way you treat actually a delusion. No, and, and, and you're going to end up banging your head up against the wall oh, because yeah. you're not going to get anywhere. It's not going to work. <laughs> but, but so the reason I think this is important is we're not, we're not not acknowledging that mom was unhealthy, which we've already said, but that like you said, her just being alive and he having a purpose, you know, even if it is bathing her and caring for her and all of that. And then, like you said, the story, his story, what she created once she was gone, that it was gone. It was gone. Yeah. It's, um, what's another symptom here? Just so we make sure we get through all of them. Like obviously dysregulated mood, agitation, um, an enmeshed unhealthy relationship with his mom we talked about. I just want to make sure we're not, you know, obviously the depression, the agitation. Um, yeah. I mean, there's, you know, there's sub symptoms, I mm -hmm. guess. So, you yeah, know, you have like it. the, the grandiosity and, yes. and some of that that's coupled in with his own narcissism. You, you find out in the movie that mom's diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder, which mm -hmm. I thought was a great use of that. I think sometimes they don't, don't use that diagnosis well. And I think that mom was, um, at least to him, was very covert about it and was very victimized. And I, I don't think I was expecting them to use that, but it was used. I thought it was used absolutely accurately. It like, was used so accurately. That makes so much sense. And yep. that, that's kind of what I was saying about the devouring mother. Yeah. Um, 
you know, a narcissistic mother is incredibly damaging in so many ways. And one of the ways is because um, their child is a narcissistic extension of them. And so when, so she was projecting onto him that he was the light of the world and because that's what she, she needed him, she needed him Mm -hmm. to be. And so, I mean, you know, he was not living up to that, but as long as he could live in his mother's mirror, he existed. And as soon as she was gone, he didn't exist anymore. And I think was devoured by his shadow. It's so deep. And I, I I don't think I've ever watched a movie where they've used that so well Mm -hmm. because it wasn't in that overt, no Hollywood type way that we use narcissism. Mm -hmm. It was actually portrayed so accurately. And I was like, I was blown away the scene where he goes to get the file and she reads through his mom's stuff. And I'm like, how many really good psychologists did they have working on the script? Cause it, <laughs> it, it, it adds up for me. It had to be, it, it really does add up. I mean, of course there's lots of things that we don't have the information that were not necessary to the story, but the way they um, created this guy and then gave him all of the precursors to what would add up to sort of, in a textbook way, a textbook way, but also in a um, like a metaphorical way, in a creative way. I just thought it was really well done in that in that sense. Um, I want to play this little clip about uh, the therapist here. Um, one of the things that gets stripped away from him is his relationship with the therapist. Mm-hmm. So I just want to play a little bit of this here. There's a couple of different clips here, but let me just play this one. Arthur, does it help to have someone to talk to? My mother always tells me to smile and put on a happy face. She told me I had a purpose to bring laughter and joy to the world. Is it just me? Or is it getting crazier out there? I think that's really, you know, it was talking about his mother, which is what we were just talking about, which works. Um, And then, uh, so this kind of brings us into a little bit of that. If you couldn't hear it, he's asking the question, you know, is it just me or is it getting crazier out there? And he asks that of his therapist. And I want to make sure we bring in some of the cultural aspects that are happening here. Um, I'll just start off by saying, you know, his, so I have to back up for just a second. So if, if we look at this from a Jungian perspective and the shadow concept, which we often bring up on the show. So, um, the shadow is basically a concept where we all have traits that are deemed undesirable either by ourselves or by our environment, but often both. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and the traits are pushed into the unconscious. Um, and Jung would say that we all carry a shadowy, a shadowy sort of repressed piece, but 
um, the more they get pushed down, so you could argue that Arthur has absolutely pushed down his negative aspects of his personality because he's the light and the joy. My mother tells me I'm going to bring light and joy to the world. So he's repressed all of the negative aspects of his personality and they become denser is mm-hmm. the idea. So if we look at it from, you know, as the clown is his persona, it's like the mask he puts on, right? And then the laugh is maybe... Um, like the voice of the shadow in a way it's the voice pushing through it's um, and then, and they, those things keep him sheltered from the reality. He plays a clown so he can play that out. He has this um, laughter that's uncontrollable and pushing through and pushing through. And as once, you know, he's never had to acknowledge that he's not the good boy that his mother would have had him believe. But once he murders those boys in the subway, he like gets a gun, right? To protect himself from the bullies. And then this whole thing happens in the subway and he ends up murdering these boys. He shoots them sort of out in self-defense, the first and second one. And then he literally goes after the third one. Mm -hmm. Like he's in full, full swing there. And I think um, he can know at that moment, he can no longer see himself as his mother sees him. Mm-hmm. He's sort of embraced the shadow sort of consumes him in that moment. And then to my point about the collective is that his shadow resonates with the cultural shadow, which is like a collective shadow. So he's sort of the martyr for the collective shadow. And that is when um, it, the scene where he's in the middle of the town and they're all, his biggest fan, right? He's like the Messiah. Yeah. And you and I have talked about this before recording, but the amount of, um, the way that these people sort of lived through him Mm -hmm. vicariously, you know, Gotham is this metropolis, this depressive, this depressed town with really wealthy people and really poor people. So, but what ends up happening is the oppressed, exploit the oppressed and Mm -hmm. so you have this awful um sociological thing happening at the end where even when they're pulling his body out of the car i mean they may have might as well put him on a crucifix i mean they they really didn't give two shits about him but he Mm -mm. symbolized their pain so he was exploited there was a uh, they felt justified in their hate and their crime and then used his pain to um as a vehicle to continue the destruction. Mm -hmm. So, and we have seen this in the mass shootings today in society where the manifestos, once you start reading all the justifications, everything that um, leads up to these people saying, this is why this was warranted and this is why we're unsafe. So there's so many deeply rooted um, sociological and like oppressive factors to this film too, that goes so far outside of Joker's character Uh, And I think that's kind of what you mean with the whole collective piece. Yeah, that's absolutely what I mean. I mean, this is, I think the one of the many reasons why this film is resonating and making money and people are having all these conversations, including us about it is because not only because Joaquin is brilliant in it, which I don't think anybody can argue with, um, but also because this film speaks to us and what we're living in right now, which is the, I mean, this is our collective shadow. This is our, I would argue, I mean, you could say you could pick any time in history for this to have surfaced. I mean, there's lots of things in our history. Um, 
that represent this violent shadow that we have. But I mean, I think of nine eleven, and right after that, when when we wanted to, we there was a collective agreement of wanting to retaliate and kill people, and you know there was just this real feeling of that. And I think that that the violence in our country is growing and growing because we continue to deny who we really are and that this violent uh, revenge is is in the water and is being acted out. Yeah, for sure. And um, I think there's, there are Joker's triggers and then there's the collective triggers. Yeah. And I think they're so um, parallel. So, mm-hmm. you know, humiliation. Mm-hmm is there and it's it's across the board right it digs into shame when we look at risk factors when i'm doing risk assessments with potential you know alleged you know offenders humiliation tends to be one of the biggest triggers uh, for people because it taps into that shame and then minimization of blame externalization of blame these are things that he did as well as the as well as society after all of this is sort of that justifying like Mm we were owed this um and then feeling justified in and taking out his aggression on anyone who triggers those early injuries Mm -hmm. so i'm justified to be this way because of what happened to me so imagine if we all took that narrative i mean it it does it becomes a civil war we all i've i used to say we all have an e-true hollywood story that might be (laughs) dated for some people but (laughs) If, if that's the narrative we're going with, then then that's pretty much saying like, well, then we all have this right to purge and, and be destructive. And that's really dangerous. It is really dangerous. And then, it, you know, then there's the group think that happens, which is what we saw in the film is the riots and the, you know, which we see in our day to day and riot the riots over the years when we collectively feel as if we have a right to do that. Right. That's when these major incidents happen. I, I was just going to say one thing to what you were saying is I think it's like as small as in this film, I think one of the first things that happens is he gets his sign stolen and then he gets beat up because he's a clown on the street. So he gets his little sign stolen and then he's running after them and he gets beat up. And then when he goes back to that's bad enough. But then when he goes back to work, he tells his boss about it. And the boss completely invalidates his feelings and says, you're going to have to pay for the sign. And he just completely in that moment, you see it on Wakeen's face. Like he just invalidates that it was real. And he's like, but it was stolen. Like they beat me up. And then the guy just totally, you know, just um, does not provide a mirror, a narcissistic mirror for him, does not validate or empathize with his situation. And he has a very angry reaction to Mm -hmm. that. So it's like something as small as that, something that looks small to the then later public humiliation that the talk show host gives him. So it's like big and small, but these little humiliating injuries are all through the the middle of this film. Yeah. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I I wanted to say one more thing real quick, just before we get off the, sociological piece which Mm -hmm. is i also wanted to recognize we were talking about how this sort of parallels what's going on today and just also looking at when a society or a population of people are oppressed for long enough the revenge and um this i think also we haven't gotten really into the trauma yet but the collective trauma too so um Mm -hmm. gotham the majority of people who live in Gotham are traumatized and oppressed and all of that. So I think that um, Bruce Wayne, his character, I mean, his, 
who he is as a person on one level is looked at as this, um, I'm sorry, not Bruce Wayne, Bruce Wayne's dad, excuse me, is looked at as this amazing figure. But to people down below, it's like, you're actually just a piece of shit. You haven't done anything for us. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, how, how close is that to what's going on right now? Absolutely. And, and I think it, I think Joaquin, I mean, the character of Joker really rides the line in between it because you see the influences of the rich and the poor in the culture of the movie, mm-hmm. but Joker stays pretty clear that he actually doesn't really care about any of that. No. And that's how he becomes a martyr for the collective right. unconscious in those issues. Because if you look at his lines and, and where he's at, he, he doesn't get into the no. whole rich, poor. No, argument. but they kind of used him. They do. They, they do. Him. He's mm-hmm. absolutely, I mean, that's where he comes in as a martyr for what I was talking about. Like yeah. the collective shadow just uses him as that. Yep. Um, no, I think that's an interesting point. It's uh, it's difficult to, it's difficult to piece all of that apart because there's so many different, um, or pick it all apart because there's so many different layers. But I would I would argue that, um, and I'll go back to what I was saying earlier. And I don't know I, I, when his mother when he realizes he's not who she's been telling him she is when that mirror's broken, I think is when his life, I think he conceptualized his life as a tragedy and abused and, you know, he needs to be this side of the other. And all of a sudden it becomes a comedy and like life is nothing more than this absurd comedy show. So when he goes on to the talk show, um, it's like his philosophical concept, uh, begins to question, right? You see him questioning what's funny and what isn't. He sort of says, you know, well, I I, I felt pretty good till I killed those three boys on the bus or whatever, or mm-hmm. the train or whatever he says. And he thinks he's saying that as a joke, but it's not a joke and nobody laughs. And so he's decided in many ways that his life is now a comedy. It's absurd. It doesn't make any sense because he isn't who he said he was. And so... I mean, what do we know about comedies? Comedies don't have any morals or ethics. Like all the rules go out of the window, out the window. So, so nothing, nothing matters anymore. It's just a big joke anyway. So Mm -hmm. that clip we were playing before of like, Hey, when I come out, can you just introduce me as Joker? And it's Mm -hmm. like, because my life's a joke. Everything's a joke. Nothing means anything anymore. Yeah. Yeah. It's so. There's a, there are other moments too, Mm -hmm. um, with the comedy piece. So when he goes to the, the club and he's listening to the guy and he starts to take notes about what's funny and what's appropriate and what people find funny. And he's writing that whole list down to me. That also is representative of like a a sociopath. (laughs) He's like, I (laughs) don't, I don't really understand this feeling stuff and I'm trying to figure out how to pass. And um, so I thought that was a cool scene where he's sitting down and he's like, okay, I want to do this or I want to, this is what makes people laugh or this is, that was, I don't know. That scene sat with me. Yeah. I think it plays into all of the, uh, the idea of having a narcissistic parent. Right. And if you're just a mirror, you have them, no, you have uh, no self. autonomy. Yeah. yeah. You have no yeah. self. And, and if, if the thing you were borrowing as a self, like if he's borrowing his mom as who he is or his essence and mm-hmm. his self. And then she's gone that the self, sh- there was no self to begin with. So he's right. empty. And right. I, I think that reflects back to all of the series we've done on the different mm-hmm. people, um, Manson, Bundy, Dahmer, like that, 
that emptiness that you feel when you're with a sociopath. Absolutely. We saw this, we talked about this at length with Dahmer, mm -hmm. um, the shadow as well as the the lack of self and all yeah. the shame pushed down. And he was like a, a, a good combo of Bundy and Dahmer for me. Um, just, I, and probably because I, you know, I, I did both of those. So yeah. I did, but it, he, oh, it's so loaded. Um, yeah, it is. And the other thing too, that I know we've been talking about trauma so embedding that in here. But when we think about resiliency, the more trauma someone has, the more complex trauma it is. And, and, um, the length of time between each trauma, if it's, if it's not very much, your, your resiliency factors are there, there's zero resiliency. So he had, he had zero tolerance mm -hmm. for any sort of discomfort or trigger because he was constantly being traumatized. Right. It's like we see him survive some of his triggers for a while there. You know, kind getting like white knuckling it. Yeah, he's white knuckling it through getting beaten up. He's using his coping strategies, which are uh, his mother's perception of him. So it it was the first half of the movie sort of trigger and then interspersed with delusions and fantasy that were helping him get by. Right. Because mm -hmm. that's where the whole story of the pseudo girlfriend was happening. And he was using his laughter, even though he doesn't use that mindfully, that was coming up more often mm -hmm. and releasing tension. He was, you know, giving his mom a bath, dancing with her in the living room, all of those things that look creepy and scary to us were the things that were keeping him afloat until they weren't. And I'm glad you say that because there are a lot of people saying that they think he was overacting mm -mm. and you and I both know firsthand that because we've worked with people who are this mentally ill and this is pretty on point yeah he he did a phenomenal job and I, I look forward to watching the documentaries of how he developed the character because <laughs> I'm sure there was a lot of uh he I was reading something study and, and he said that the the set was actually not very heavy and he would go in and out of that character super easy. Well, I think that's who he is as an actor. I think so too, but yeah. it, he didn't, you know, where other roles he's talked about, like the real heavy method mm -hmm. kind of being in it on the set and not mm -hmm. and like we heard Heath Ledger do that when he was under, and that's not at all how, but it also makes sense with Joker's character, right? Totally because does. he was unstable. He wasn't just one persona the whole time. It totally does. And that, and I also think it, it speaks to craft too, where he had, he knew what he was going to do. He wanted, you know, he, I'm assuming he knew what, how he was going to do it. And I think, I think that fits on so many levels because Joker has a very surface presentation as do many sociopaths. Absolutely. So to play him as someone who's on the surface and doesn't have a ton of depth and is working unconsciously. So if we look at him as just a manifestation of things that are coming out that he's not really mindfully creating or manipulating, then that makes sense to me because you can't mindfully create them as an actor and expect that to resonate. You mm -hmm. have to be really light with it. Mm -hmm. And, and although the movie was intentionally dark and mm -hmm. pensive and tragic in many ways. I can see I, that makes perfect sense to me actually to he came in it and that out. way. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we're going to take a break and we're going to come back. And the second portion of our show is uh, we decided to go into more risk assessment, um, behavioral threat assessment, what we would do 
or how we would address assessing him if he was brought to us in any one of these states, as well as untangling the mental health versus violence conversation that now has been brought up again in our culture from this movie. So we'll be right back. While we take a quick break, go follow us on Instagram at Terror Talk Podcast, Twitter at Talk Terror, and Facebook Halloween all year long. If you like us, you can help us by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes, or check out our Patreon page for extra content and more behind-the-scenes discussions. We upload new episodes every Wednesday and Friday. Keep coming back, but first, stick around for more of our show. Hi there, it's Tarot Talk. We're back after the break. We are going to get into some risk assessment stuff and untangling the mental health versus violence conversation. And also just, I was thinking, I was thinking during the break, you know, I think one of the, also one of the reasons why this film is resonating and all that stuff we were talking about, about the, you know, the collective shadow is that, I mean, what do we fear most today? Um, a white male loner with an untreated mental illness and a loaded gun. Like that's, <laughs> that's what we, that's something that's happening so much right now mm -hmm. in our culture that this movie just takes it to another level, puts it in a package that's familiar. You know, it's the, it's the answer to our oversaturated superhero movie market. You know, it's, yep. it's, 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 it's serving a lot of purposes right now. It really is. And I think that um, we've talked about this a lot, but being able to really break down the complexity of this because this is what makes our field so... Um, I was sitting with a, a colleague of mine and he was like, man, you know, there's so many ethical landmines <laughs> in our field. And, yeah. and what he means by that is there are things that can easily be missed and there are easily things that... Uh, there are things that can be easily over pathologized right. and so um it's not black and white and we've talked about that oh. a lot on this show mm -hmm. it's not black and white and so like you and i have said many times whether it's been recording or just in our own discussions that someone with a a, a mental illness or even with the same exact upbringing or trauma or whatever as joker doesn't necessarily mean it's going to result in this kind of violence. And so that's why we have risk assessment. That's why we do risk assessment. Um, we wouldn't have various risk assessments if we could just say, well, he's doing that. Well, mm -hmm. then he's going to do that. Right. 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 If, if it was cause and effect constantly. Right. And I think that we, we oversimplify it in the media because it gives people a sense of control that we can predict it. Mm -hmm. And one of the, the things that we do in risk assessment, and I've, I've done risk assessment for a while, I'm about to start doing it again, is um, we, we have to collect so much information to then be able to make a clinical opinion as to whether someone might recidivate which means if they have a history of risk what is the likelihood that they're going to be uh violent again mm -hmm. if they've never had any risk the older they get we know that their risk for violence drops typically mm -hmm. interwoven in all of that are what we call um historical and clinical 
risk factors. So what this means is we have two different types of risk factors. We have static risk factors and we have dynamic risk factors. Static risk factors are traits that can't change. Mm -hmm. They're states, basically. Okay, so for example, history of alcohol abuse, Mm -hmm. can't change that. No. A lack of a support system is a risk factor, but it's a dynamic risk factor Mm -hmm. because we can change it. So when we're looking at somebody's risk, and and Shannon and I talked about protective factors a lot during the first part of this, was he really had, the only protective factor he had was his mom, and it was based on narcissism and delusions and all of this. So clearly when she was gone, that was it. That was the, the, you know, the final straw, like we said. But Mm -hmm. he had nothing else in place to counter. I would actually add that um, he had medication and a therapist. Mm -hmm. And when the therapist was, when the funding was cut and the therapist went away, he actually didn't know how to get his meds anymore. So there's this sort of very brief moment where we realize he went off of his meds. He went off of his meds. So I think, so I'll just throw that in there. Yeah, no, that's true. So he, he did have his therapist. Um, we don't know the quality of that, but it was something consistent. Yeah, let and me actually just play this super quick clip because sure. I have this clip of him with his therapist, which is, I think, um, indicative of their relationship. Just really quick, let me play this. Arthur, I have some bad news for you. <laughs> this is the last time we'll be meeting. You don't listen to you. You just ask the same questions every week. How's your job? Are you having any negative thoughts? All I have are negative thoughts. So even though she was, you know, it, it was a perception that she was ineffectual or, you know, it was in this chaotic room with all these st- stacks of paper everywhere not very therapeutic environment she was judgmental Mm -hmm. there was all this stuff and he was obviously oppositional to her and Mm -hmm. would say all kinds of stuff like he said in that clip to her even though all of that was happening it was still a protective factor yeah it was he was having communication with a person (laughs) every week and that's actually how he got his medication as well yep and and this this happens a lot in um institutionalized settings where Mm -hmm. people will be like well is the therapy really working it really becomes less about that and more about the consistency and Mm -hmm. the containment and the Mm -hmm. monitoring and like you said access to resources like medication and it, it Sometimes it even is like faking it till they make it or being able to play out whatever they have with the therapist. So it's not it's not always going to look the same as like private practice therapy where we have X amount of goals and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's it's a it plays a very different role. So that's a really excellent point. So the the risk assessment piece, though, and I don't want to take too much time on the all of the details because that would be like a training but I I guess what I want to say is um, even as even as professionals you know when we do this for a living our job is to be able to give a level of prediction to whether someone's going to be violent and clinical judgment is only as good as a flip of a coin so just sitting with a person and talking to them it's as good as 50 Mm -hmm. percent clinical judgment alone really means shit and Mm -hmm. if you go in and you testify in court and you say oh i talked to this person and that's how i know i'm a psychologist and i can do this 
you're not going to be very credible. No. So um, we certainly can't do that because we see a, a mass shooter on TV and we go, oh, it's well, it's because he had depression. You know, it, it really is so much more complicated. And I think this movie really played out how um, all of these historical factors and all of his, everything going on in his life, how that all played together and increased his risk. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the factors that contributed to his risk unfortunately were static factors. Yeah, I was going to say that, and maybe um, this is what, I think it would be valuable for us to just list a few of like what we would, what the, um, what the facts are about sort of statistic, static factors, like historical factors, basically. Mm -hmm. Like, so for example, this in case people don't know, mm -hmm. uh, being male for yep. for violence. So this is yep. this is level of violence risk when we're when we're rating like low, moderate, high for, you know, risk factors. So if we look at Joker, so male, okay? Mm -hmm. Under 35 years old is often mm -hmm. a static factor. Uh, criminal history, uh, previous violence, previous use of weapons, those kinds of things cuz that's history we can't change that, right? Mm -hmm. So childhood abuse, um, history of drug and alcohol misuse, you mm -hmm. said. Um, and role instability is one too. Role instability, uh, never um, being in a long-term relationship mm -hmm. or being married. Clearly, we've reworked that wording with <laughs> clearly with you know, um, you know civil rights mean. and all that. You know but, what we mean. <laughs> but um, that that was that's a big one too. Mm -hmm. The and the reason for that people well that's that's discriminating. The reason why that is in there is typically when someone is in a marriage, even if it's not the best marriage, there's an accountability piece there and there's someone who's um they're sort of, I don't know, checking in with that person. So that would have been mom. For that him. would have been mom. Yeah. So when mom was gone, yeah, I guess that's a good point. That was almost like his his marriage, right? Yeah. So when he lost that he, it was like I don't, I don't. I'm the only one holding myself accountable, and what do I care? Yeah, no, it 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 totally, it totally protective. So factor. lack of a support system, mm -hmm. that's dynamic. That can be changed. But yeah, go right. ahead. Go no, ahead, that's that, that's what well, that was. That was my little list. <laughs> those are mm -hmm. often the things that are. So that gives you an idea of mm -hmm. what the examples. And he had are. all of those aesthetic factors. <laughs> yeah, that's why I say the writers. You know, they're a little on the nose. There, mm -hmm. it was very Joker is very um, cartoonish in that way as well right mm -hmm. he's very much a comic character in that way as well he's got all the markers right. so um that's why it's so grim i think so then if we talk about dynamic risk factors i mean you mentioned a few things yeah the change. support system um having a consistent job therapy mm -hmm. um those that's all kind of support um like uh a paranoid ideation, uh, you know, some of his mental health, some stuff, of the symptoms, you know, violent command, hallucination, medication compliance. Yeah. Medicaid. Oh, huge. Oh my gosh. Mm. Preoccupation with violent ideas, uh, inappropriate sexual behavior. Yeah. I mean, all of these things are dynamic risk factors, meaning they're current. They're, they're happening right now and they could be, you know, altered maybe with meds or right. Um, all different kinds of things. Um, current use of drugs and alcohol is often, mm -hmm. A dynamic risk factor. So we talked about a history of drug and alcohol. Can't change that. But a current use of drug and alcohol, we could change. Mm -hmm. um, a reduced ability to control yourself. Uh, access to available means. So a gun. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that can be changed. You know, often in crisis assessment, we certainly, when I was doing that, we certainly paid attention a lot to, do they have any means? 
to hurt themselves in the way they'd like to hurt themselves. Right. You know, um, do they have any, you know, does a five-year-old have the means to kill his 17 year old sister who he says that's he right. wants to kill? Well, that's not particularly feasible. Right. I mean, I'm speaking very generally right now, like not about a specific person, but we look at those sorts of things. Is that realistic to think that's actually a risk factor? So, yeah. Yep. So he had a lot going against him. He did. Um, and, and the reason why Shannon and I are talking about this is, again, just to display the complexity of risk assessment. And it, it, it's much more in-depth than I think most people recognize. Uh, and you certainly can't make an assessment just because you've sat with someone for 20, 20 minutes or seen a shooting on TV. It takes sometimes six or seven psychologists evaluating one person in some of these cases to, to get a hold and see if they can even um, have the same opinion. Yeah. And to be honest, we're not really ever given those resources, at least, I mean, in the places that I've had to do risk assessment or make decisions, um, we don't get to have that many opinions most of the time. I wish, it, I wish it worked that way for sure, but there's just a lot of times there's just not yeah. enough time because or, of danger, mm-hmm. it's like they're, they're, you're, you're making assessment, you're making the best judgment call you can, given the information that you get within, you know, an hour to 90 minute assessment in the field type mm-hmm. of thing. Um, certainly in psychiatric hospitals and deciding whether or not someone should be released or not, deciding whether they should be put on a hold or not, deciding whether they should be able to go back to their lives and, and, and live out their days as a free person. I mean, all of those, there's a lot more ability to have some time to do that, I guess, and Mm -hmm. to have collaborating opinions and make, uh, educated, um, decisions about it but often like in crisis assessment you know unfortunately no you have to make yeah you You just have to make the best decision you can a lot of times risk assessment will come um post adjudicative or it will come after the fact and that's why we're doing it is because there's a reason to do it right once you're in the crisis it's more about like we just need to de-escalate this for now and do the assessment later yes um but different different skills like i mean and and i think it's really good that actually that we stumbled upon, um, you know, our different experiences Mm -hmm. in a way, because it is very different how you deal with a risk assessment that's in, that's at a crisis level or in a crisis, whether that, um, as opposed to when you're dealing with, you know, whether or not to let someone out of jail or, Mm -hmm. um, whatever else, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's an actually a really good distinction. Uh, okay. Risk assessment. Do we feel like we... We did what we wanted to do on that. I think so. I think just the the take home point is just how complicated it is. Absolutely, we could probably talk. Uh, well, it comes up in almost every <laughs> true crime psychology mm-hmm. <laughs> because eventually the person goes to jail, and we talk about it, right? Right, and and why and how that works, and some of the assessments. I was thinking so. So one of the things about this movie, about the Joker movie that is happening right now is people are having conversations and um, conflict or discussion around the violence in this movie. Mm -hmm. Have you been, have you been hearing Mm -hmm. these? Yeah, I've been seeing these things. And, you know, one of the points I'd like to say, and I, I feel like I got this from a video I was watching. I watch a lot of like movie review people on YouTube. So I apologize. I don't remember which one, but it spawned a thought for me in that, you know, with regards to 
uh, superhero movies and stuff. So if you think about Batman, which is the other half of this <laughs> equation, mm-hmm. ultimately, not in this movie in particular, but you know, it's touched on a little bit, but we embrace Batman as an antihero that avenges out of his trauma. Right. Right. And still does a lot of horrible shit. Oh yeah. You know, Batman's not a nice guy. It's actually kind of why he was always my favorite is yeah. that Batman was, um, not healthy. Mm-hmm. as a person um and so and thus kind of more fascinating he's not one-sided he's and and we like him as an anti-hero because he's avenging this terrible trauma that happened to him mm-hmm. but joker is actually and y- you tell me if i'm wrong but f- coming from our perspective i would say that joker is a much more realistic portrayal of you know I don't know, an anti-hero in a way, not really a hero, but it's mm-hmm. much more realistic portrayal of how trauma plays out. Oh, for sure. Well, whereas, you know, Batman, we like him because he avenges his trauma and then he's a one-hit wonder from there, right? He right. never, he never... <laughs> there's not a lot of stumbling. Yeah, there's not a lot of risk assessment there, even though but he does... But even how he's painted, you know, yeah. he's good looking and mm-hmm. he's wealthy and this poor boy's left alone with all this money and so mm-hmm. he avenges that and, 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 you know, I'm not saying wealthy people can't have trauma. They certainly do, sometimes more so because of the money, mm-hmm. but joker he gets he continues to get knocked down yeah just the caricature of them is very interesting of how it's like good guy and bad guy even though you know if they were in a bar having a cup of tea together they probably have quite a bit in common Yep, (laughs) in many ways as far as not facts necessarily but just how their childhood trauma created something and Actually, you know, it actually speaks to as well the individuality of trauma, right? And mm-hmm. the risk factors and the protective factors that we're talking about and how people often ask me, you know, how come, you know, these five people can all be abused as children and this person is someone like the Joker and this person is a very successful, you know, attorney or something. Mm-hmm. But they they both had what would seem to be similar trauma. Yep. People ask me that kind of question. It's definitely a cocktail party kind of question mm-hmm. for people. It's like, well, how does that happen? Because, and that's what we've been talking about, right? This black and white of, yeah. you can't say the kid was abused and be- and then he did this, this, and this. Mm-hmm. It's all of these factors mm-hmm. that we're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Do people ever ask you that? Or, uh, Yeah, I mean, they they do. I just think it's ironic in some of these cases, though, with when we're talking about like the mass shootings and things like that is it oftentimes seems to be the majority population, the people who who haven't been oppressed are the ones who are yes. actually carrying this out. So I want to separate that from like when we're looking at trauma and mental illness and that sort of reaction. Mm-hmm. And I think that, again, like you were saying, it comes down to protective factors and when you're looking at so we have a we have a risk assessment guide that we use called the hdr 20 which is historical uh factors and um clinical factors and then we have what's called risk management and that what that means is what is the likelihood that someone's going to get the resources for these risk factors to be lowered and i think that the more money unfortunately the more money you have 
um, and the more privilege you have in a lot of ways, and I know there might be people who are disagreeing with me, but I've seen it in, in the work I do, that those people are going to get the resources quicker. They're going to have more intervention. Mm-hmm. They're going to be able to pay for longer term therapy with therapists who are not burnt out. Mm-hmm. So I think that risk management um, and somebody's access to risk management plays a huge part in this. Yeah. And I think if you, if you, so if Joker is an example of that, the program is a social, social work program through the government that he's getting his meds right. through. It's like a, a Medi-Cal or she, a, that woman probably had 50 people on her caseload. Right. Exactly. And so no wonder she's, you know, who she was in the movie, mm-hmm. you know, the, I think they were portraying, it might've been a caricature, but they were portraying a very real situation. Actually. I've met those social workers. Yep. Um, I've met amazing, talented, wonderful, passionate social workers as well, but I've absolutely met the social worker that personified in that movie. And I, and I don't blame them in many ways because the system has, I think at one overworked point, and underpaid. Absolutely. I think at one point in the movie, she says, you know, the government doesn't care about you and it doesn't care about me. Yep. And so, and that's, um, this movie has so many cultural statements like that. And I, I think that's accurate in the sense that, you know, he doesn't have any access to any other way. He didn't know how he was going to get his meds. No, where, where Bruce Wayne probably had the psychiatrist coming to the house. Yeah. And a lot of people around. <laughs> and a lot of people to around. To help him out with that. And raising him and, and building a support system for him. And, mm-hmm. and so he had access to things that helped him build a sense of self-efficacy mm-hmm. and get through the trauma. And again, resiliency. Mm-hmm. He had a massive trauma happen by watching his parents die. And that probably created post-traumatic stress. However, after that stressor, there was a lot of time that went by where he had people who stepped in and mm-hmm. cared for him. So his resiliency was there. Joker had no resiliency. Mm-mm. There was nobody stepping up to the plate for him. There was nobody who genuinely cared for him. So that's the biggest difference here, guys. Yeah, and that's what, you know, the the cliche that is uh, is true for us is where it just takes one person Yep. to, I mean, I work with foster kids. It's like, it just takes one person often to provide a corrective, what we call a corrective experience in a kid's life um, to, and that's why we talk about, we use the word, at least in my work, we use the word caregiver because Mm -hmm. it's not always the parents. It's sometimes it's the grandparents. Sometimes it's a foster mother or father, um, adopted mother or father, um, the sister, the aunts and uncles, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a, it's, it just takes one Mm -hmm. and Joker had zero. And the person he did have, he lost, he murdered really. Yeah. Out of a, you know, rage. Yeah. Cause everything else had fallen apart. But, um, so let's, let's talk just a bit about a topic we visit, but maybe we talk about it in a, a little bit, I don't know, more linear way as far as violence and mental health. Mm-hmm. So in this situation, we've got a guy who is both mentally ill mm-hmm. and organically ill. He's got mm-hmm. a medical condition, so brain trauma, plus mental illness, plus he's a violent criminal. Yeah. So he's all of it. Yep. Right? So, and I think sometimes that's confusing. Yep. You know, because I think it's hard to 
it, it's it's really difficult to watch a great movie like Joker and then go out into the world and say, well, see, mental illness and violence. Right. He's violent and mentally ill. See, like right. that's, that's see? how it works. That's how it works. Yeah. And well, no. <laughs> <laughs> so there isn't a, so I'll start with this. There isn't a single psychiatric diagnosis that maps onto homicidal killer. Right. Even, right. even a psychopath can go his or her entire life without harming one person physically. Yep. Uh, yes, I believe I've met them. We've encountered Yes, I believe some. I've encountered some of those, um, which is good to say that they have not acted on that instinct in that moment. Um, yeah, and, and the interested, the like targeted violence alone, it doesn't trace to a particular mental health problem. Right. Yeah. So, so despite the youth of psychopath, which we, we may entitle this <laughs> episode, the making of a psychopath, um, not sure. I haven't figured out what I'm going to title it yet, but psychopath isn't a clinical diagnosis. No, <laughs> you've got psychopath and sociopath. One's more, depending on your orientation, my understanding is sociopathy is more environmentally based mm-hmm. where a psychopath. That's the word social, right? Yeah. And then psycho, uh, psychopath, uh, psychopathy would be, you know, when there's organic brain. Well, um, and psychopaths are, so, so it's, it, it's an extreme character condition. So it's manipulation yeah. and selfishness and extreme yeah. callousness and, um, violating social norms. Um, uh, a need for stimulation but see joker doesn't have all those i don't think do you think yeah, so I selfish do. yes um violating social norms violating yes. social norms for sure need yeah. for stimulation i think yeah. so um, i think he'd be pretty high up on the pclr he'd be very high <laughs> i'm just saying yeah. I, it's the manipulation piece yes when he crosses over yeah like when everything's stripped away Yes, manipulative. But here's where but we... But I think he's crossed over into, like, he's gone into the total stress reaction Well, well that's by what then. I was, was going to say. This is where it's complex because you just said something important at the beginning, which was you have the personality stuff, you have the mental illness stuff, and you have the physical illness stuff. Not all sociopaths or psychopaths have mental illness. Mm-hmm. They might have a mental disorder, which is their antisocial personality disorder or their psychopathy, but that might not be coupled with a psychotic disorder. Mm-hmm. So I think for us, it's hard to see him as manipulative because he's so sick Yeah, um, that I don't even know if we would be able to differentiate how much of it is like in a, a conscious mm-hmm. manipulation versus a reaction to. So I think that's where his stuff gets really yeah, interesting convoluted versus like a Bundy who you're going, Oh, he's clearly manipulative. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah, because yeah. he's not schizophrenic or he's not psychotic. Well, it, it, you know, being manipulative implies, you know, an observing ego that's outside of the right. behavior that is manipulating the situation and creating something false Mm-hmm. for you and there's nothing false about joker mm-hmm. so so there's so that would be and it wouldn't be necessary for us to see him as manipulative for him to be a psychopath right and what i think what's interesting about that too is that the few people so far that we've you know done the true crime psychology um, episodes on have all been manipulative mm-hmm to varying degrees on the spectrum and in very different presentations, Mm -hmm. but they've all been, had that sort of um, willful manipulation. Yeah. And you know what, at the end of the day, maybe he 
isn't a sociopath. We, I mean, no, no, we don't know. Or we, a psychopath. Or yeah. a psychopath. Mm-hmm. We don't know. Um, but we certainly know that he was delusional and psychotic enough to believe all of this as his truth and mm-hmm. feel justified for what he did. So I don't know. He, it's, this is mental health people. <laughs> it is not talk about cut it. and dry. <laughs> That's why we talk about it. I mean, I think it's interesting to know that, you know, violent among violent killers, less than half of them actual have an actual known history of a mental disorder. Yeah. So Joker is a representation of, less than half and i would argue he had if we don't know that if certain things had continued and certain inciting incidents hadn't happened if he ever would have acted in the way he acted we don't and that's where the the whole without going too far into it when we talk about the diathesis stress model if you have you know pre-existing condition there and it's triggered by something environmental that's the perfect storm but if that trigger was never there that stressor was never there there could have been this underlying piece but he may have never acted out on it mm-hmm. and that's that's why it's so important to see and i think what the film does really well is to just see the the evolution of the oh the downfall of and 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 it's pretty frightening too because and i'm sure everyone can see this but you're just sitting there doing the work we do i'm sitting there going oh this isn't this isn't good yeah well, shannon kept looking at me going there's stressor number four <laughs> stressor number five about 20 minutes later and stressor number five <laughs> It was like stressor number 42, number 43. Yeah, yeah it sort of just goes on. And then and after on. a while, she's like, I don't even know what fucking yeah, stressor I Screw yeah. this. <laughs> it's all bad. It's going down. And I have to say, as a film geek and as someone who does like comic book stories, I when he comes down the stairs and is Ugh. dancing down the stairs in his suit and he's in full Joker glory, like that was for me, that was the payoff. Um, because the movie is not a superhero movie no. at all. It doesn't Mm-mm. fit into any kind of mark. It's meant, I, I saw a panel with, um, last weekend I saw a panel with, um, some of the makers of this movie and, um, they said straight out, like, this was made as a standalone movie. This isn't, you know, mm-hmm. the first of 12 or, you know, they confirmed that in the panel. They're like, yeah, no, this was meant to be a standalone movie of Joker. And, but, on that moment when he's coming dancing in his red suit and his full makeup on his way to the talk show, that mo I literally got goosebumps because it was Joker in his full mm-hmm. origin story. For sure. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know, I got yeah. some I got some fan moment out of yeah. that. Just geeky type of thing. Shannon started crying and screaming. <laughs> I was embarrassed. That's I when I walked out. My um, my pseudo ball bar effect was in yeah. full form. Except she screams. She doesn't laugh like a little girl. Uh, yeah, that's what happened. Um, all right. So I think that's that. What we're going to do now is take another break and we're going to come back. And yes, we are going to do a what the hell segment. Yeah, so, what the hell. Yeah, what the hell. We'll do a what the hell. See you in a minute. Hi, everybody. We're back. Um, this is Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy, and we're going to do our What the Hell segment. Kathy, would you like to go first? Sure. And guess what? It's what? not Florida this time. Oh, my gosh. So Floridians. Fail. <laughs> Good job. Take a break. <laughs> Texans. Oh, no. Chastity Eugenia Hobson. Mm-hmm. She was so worried about her possibly tainted meth 
that she actually contacted the police about it. Oh, well. Right. So, yep. I don't know if this is poisonous, so I should call the police. <laughs> Officers at the Granite Shoals Police Department in Texas were trying to catch the county's dumbest drug users when they posted a fake Facebook story about Ebola-tainted oh. meth. Oh, brilliant. The post said, if you have recently purchased meth or heroin in Central Texas, please take it to the local police or sheriff department so it can be screened with a special device. Do not use it until it has been properly checked for possible Ebola contamination. <laughs> I guess they know their audience. <laughs> yep. Hobson, 29, saw the post and was understandably afraid that her meth could be, wait for it, dangerous. <laughs> You know what's brilliant about it that? It wasn't too. dangerous before this. <laughs> yeah, right. What's brilliant about that, too, is that meth heads are often very paranoid. So yeah, it's just, it just fits. It just fits so perfectly. So she responds to the department's post on Facebook. They gladly t take her sample in for testing. <laughs> and then she's charged with possession of less than one gram of a controlled substance. Can you imagine? She's like, wait, what? <laughs> wait, hold what on. What happened? But is it tainted, she says, as she's being dragged down the hallway. But wait, did it have Ebola? Idiot. <laughs> All right. Here's mine. In South Africa, we're going global. A policeman responding to a burglary, burglary report at a house in Johannesburg sat down on the couch to take a statement, as you do, not realizing that a burglar was hiding underneath it. <laughs> The homeowner looked down and saw the burglar lying flat on his stomach, half under and behind the couch. Oh, my God. <laughs> half under the couch and half behind the couch. It's like how my, like my dog sometimes will be like, I'm just going to cover my face. Yeah. Yeah. Can't see you. Uh, so his head happened to be right near the policeman's legs. <laughs> it was just oh like, God. can you imagine you're just holding it as still as possible? The policeman jumped off the couch and the man was arrested after handing back stolen jewelry and a digital camera. Uh, yeah. Wow. The whole thing was very bizarre, says the homeowner. <laughs> <laughs> I would imagine. <laughs> Why? Yes. That is very bizarre. So that's our What the Hell segment for the day. My goodness. Um, thank you so much for listening. Next week on Terror Talk, we will have a discussion of the movie Doctor Sleep, which we are going to see together, and we're going to throw in the book as well. Uh, yeah, we're going to include both the movie and the novel in our discussion, and then the week after that, we will start our series on Richard Kuklinski. So that's coming up. I'm looking forward to that. I am too. So until then, this is Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Terror Talk. If you enjoyed this show, there are two things you could do for us. Subscribing and sharing our episodes on social media, as well as writing a review on iTunes. Plus, you could check out our Patreon page. Don't hesitate to contact us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We upload new episodes of Terror Talk every Wednesday and of Shrink Chat every Friday. Until then, goodbye and have a pleasant tomorrow. <laughs>